Your spiritual life is to be received and began in faith. And we talked about that last week, how we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Jesus Christ alone. That it's not about what we have done or what we must do to appease God. It is trusting in what Christ has done and accomplished for us on the cross. But this week, we are reminded of the other side of that promise, that we are reminded that our spiritual life is not just begun through faith, it is also lived by faith. It is lived by faith. Hebrews 11 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is not some vague hope that is grounded in imaginary, wishful thinking. It is the confidence of things to come, rooted in who God is and what he has promised to do. Which, speaking of which, faith is not blind, by the way, although many mistakenly say it is. It ought to be informed faith. Informed faith, because it's based on what we see and heard and have experienced. And we exercise faith all the time, frankly. You displayed faith this morning when you came into church and sat down in the pews. You had faith that we don't have cheap particle board pews that could hold you. I didn't see any of you guys bring out a measuring tape and, you know, say, how thick is this wood? You know, can this really hold me? No, you, by faith, trusted we didn't cheap out on the pews. And exercise faith by just sitting down and trusting that it could handle you. If you didn't trust us or have faith in us, that would be another story. In the same way, we don't have uninformed and blind faith in God, but it is trust, it is built on our trust of who He is and who we know Him to be. It is informed by the infallible and inerrant Word of God that tells us who God is. And it testifies over and over again that we serve a God who is worthy of our faith this morning. We, we see it encourages us to be like Caleb and Joshua, the two Israeli spies from, from, uh, from the book of uh, Numbers who spied out the land and had the faith that even though there were giants in the land and strong fortified cities, they believed in a God strong enough to give them the land. They had faith in who God is, not trusting in their own abilities, but trusted God that much. In the same way, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3 had faith that God would rescue them from the fiery furnace because they believed in a God that powerful and a God that big. And that's exactly what took place. And dare I say, as our thesis for this morning, the same is true of us today. That we must live in such a way that demonstrates we actually have the audacity to believe in a God who is big enough to keep his promises. And do, and that we can actually, that we actually do believe the things we say and proclaim this morning. So as we turn to our text this morning, we see Peter, James, and John coming down from the mountaintop from our last time that we were together in the scriptures. And they find a bit of a mess waiting for them at the bottom of the mountain as we turn back into verse 14. That says, And when they came to the crowd, a man came and said to him, oh, came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. 
and I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Now, quick footnote before we go any further. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that every person with epilepsy has a demon. The Bible does not say that. Some people, it just says, this one did. Some people misrepresent what the Bible says. Oh, you couldn't understand what epilepsy was in the first century, so you said he had a demon. No, it just says this boy did. Got to keep our facts straight on this. And what this demon did to the boy was vicious, horrible, and not like every episode of epilepsy. I mean, one could imagine how much suffering this family had to endure with this child that was thrown into fires. Could you imagine the scars that this child had to endure? Or perhaps lung damage from the near drowning experiences he has had. And the apostles, bless their hearts, tried and failed to deliver this boy from this demon. And a theme I told you would reemerge is right before us again. This theme that I told us we could expect of the constant failure of the disciples. And it's purposeful. I believe the gospel writers very intentionally want to make it absolutely clear that there is only one hero in the gospels. And it's not the disciples. It's Jesus Christ. He alone is to take all the credit for all the good that has happened in the scriptures. As these guys constantly don't seem to have the faith or the abilities or the wisdom to get them out of these ruts that they find themselves in. But the man did the best thing he could do though, even when the disciples failed him. Even when men failed to provide the solution he was looking for, he brought his child to Jesus. That's the right answer. (laughs) Look, people are going to fail you in this lifetime. Pastors are going to fail you. Committees are going to fail you. Elders are going to fail you. Professionals of every kind will under-deliver for you. But even though all these people might fail or come short, let me assure you, Jesus never fails. And that is our hope this morning. (laughs) Keep going. Whatever has happened to you, whatever struggles and trials you might find yourself in this morning, don't stop going to Jesus. He is the one who can give you a deeper healing than any physician can accomplish in your life. He is worth continuing to go to. And Jesus responds to this man's report in a way that, that might surprise us in verse 17, where it says, And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. That language is a bit surprising, isn't it? And you know, this might come to to news to some of you, but while God is slow to anger, abounding in love, and abounding in patience, God does get frustrated just not in the same way you and I do. You see, I get frustrated because of my unrealistic expectations. I get frustrated because I didn't get enough sleep. I get frustrated because I didn't have enough coffee in the morning. I get frustrated because I had too much coffee in the morning, and I'm jittery. I imagine I'm not the only one here, right? 
And I'm sure to, in Jesus' humanity, that might be some of what's going on here. Jesus was a man frustrated who experienced stress just like the rest of us. But God also neither faints nor grows weary, as Isaiah 40 tells us, in his deity. However, I think the best way to understand this is that Jesus' frustration here is rooted in his realistic expectations, as opposed to my unrealistic ones. And we see this all over Scripture. In Exodus, after encountering God at the burning bush, Moses declined to follow where God was sending him. And God was displeased at Moses' lack of faith. Then despite the plagues, the people of God, uh, or the people thought God led them out of Egypt just to die by Pharaoh in front of the Red Sea. And God was displeased by their lack of faith and what that said about who they thought God was. God then saves them through the Red Sea and they complain that they're going to die in the wilderness. What do you guys think God thought about that? displeased again by their lack of faith, by their lack of belief in who God really was. So whether the setting is in Egypt, Israel, or South Amboy, New Jersey, God is displeased when we have every reason to trust him, but for some reason we do not. However, as Jesus will shortly tell us, it's not about having great faith or confidence in yourself. It's having great faith and trust in the right person. That's what this passage is about. Jesus continues to demonstrate in the next verse that his, well, demonstrating his absolute power and authority, showing us that he is absolutely worthy of our faith this morning. As verse 18 says, And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. And the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And that's a legitimate question. No, less than a year ago in the biblical chronology, in Matthew 10, they could do this when Jesus sent them out two by two. And Mark chapter 6 even tells us that they were successful in their endeavor. They were casting out demons back then, but suddenly they couldn't with this one. Why? What happened? What changed? Well, Jesus tells them exactly what changed in a packed verse in verse 20 that says he said to them because of your little faith for truly I say to you if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed you can say to this mountain move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you he tells them point blank you you failed to cast this demon out because of your little and deficient faith. You see, it's not that they had no faith. They just had little faith. That was the problem. They still had the kind of faith Peter had when he tried and failed to walk on the waters. A faith that was incomplete. A faith that was unsure. Who is bigger, these wind and waves or God? The one who's walking on the wind of waves or the power of the storm, which is stronger? They were still struggling with that. And Jesus seems to be saying their problem is the same here. Unsure of who was bigger. And you see, as we come to understand this, 
Their problem here isn't their confidence in themselves. What they are deficient in is their confidence in God. That's the problem here. You see, many false teachers will twist a text like this and make this about your confidence in your faith and the power of your prayers is how they twist the meaning of this. And they say that, uh, say that it's about you know, how, how, how sure you are that your prayer is and, and it will be answered. But that's not what this is talking about. It's not about how great your faith is in yourself, but how much we trust God. Because Jesus said, even if you have a little faith in God, comparatively to the size of a mustard seed, the the smallest agricultural seed in the world, you could say to this mountain, move, and it'll move. It's the power of where our faith is placed that matters most. Now let's address the elephant, or dare I say the mountain, in the room. Did Jesus literally mean that? Can I actually point at a mountain and say, hey, mountain, move? It's a good question. Because if he meant that to be taken literally, we have a problem. Because nobody's done that. In 2,000 years of Christian history, I can't tell you an incident of a mountain moving because some guy said so. Not even Jesus or the apostles. So this isn't, when people ask, you know, John, do you take the Bible literally? I say, yeah, well, yes, when it's meant to be taken literally. But I also interpret the Bible metaphorically when it's meant to be taken metaphorically. I interpret the Bible grammatically and historically. That's how I like to answer the question. How is it meant to be intended? What is the intended reading of this text? Because moving mountains was a Jewish metaphor that was common back in the day that was synonymous with doing the impossible or the seemingly impossible. If you talked about something impossible that you couldn't do and you know just seemed like you couldn't get out of it, it was like, oh, well, i got to move mountains in my life. That's what he's talking about here. It's not literally meant to be intended that way. So to be clear, when Jesus is saying that, If you aren't trusting in your own strength but God's, and you're trusting that God is able to do the impossible, you will see seemingly impossible things happen. That's what he's really talking about here. That's the point. And we see this throughout Scripture. God told Abraham in his old age, you will have a son. That was impossible back then. There was no way that makes sense. But he believed by faith that God was able to keep his promise even if it made no sense for him to do so. That's faith. Not magically moving mountains by the power of positive psychology. (laughs) Different thing altogether here. So the question I pose to every one of us here today is this. Do you live and act like the promises of God are true? Because, look, I've been in prayer meetings with people with little and deficient faith. And it shows. I mean, I've, I, people just have no confidence in God whatsoever. They come into the prayer meeting and they say, Lord, we ask that you heal Bob, even though you probably won't. Kind of sound like Eeyore as they're praying. Oh, it's never going to change. But I'm praying anyway. 
I, I don't know about you guys. I don't know who that person is praying to, but that's not the same God that I pray to. I pray to the God who made the heavens and the earth, the God who can do all things. I can be confident when I pray. I'm not confident in myself. I'm confident in what he can accomplish. My God can cure cancer. My God can move mountains. My God can do whatever he wants. He can provide for you financially, emotionally, physically, whatever your need is. God can meet you there. That's who I pray to. And I encourage all of you to do so as well. But look, at the same time, I recognize God is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. He is under no obligation to say yes to all of my prayers. And in fact, I've grown grateful for some of the prayers he said no to over the years. Some of the things I thought that I wanted, I found out I did not want. God knows best. We pray, thy will be done. But the point is that I can't expect an answer from him if I doubt he can or will answer. That was the point of our first reading, actually. If I don't trust that God is willing or able to answer my prayers, I can't expect to receive an answer from him. That's the point of James 1. And funny enough, we get a rather hysterical example from Acts chapter 12 when the disciples were praying that Peter would be led out of prison. Some of you guys might remember this story where they're praying all night that Peter would be led out of prison. He was arrested for the faith and their prayer is miraculously answered. Peter is freed by an angel and is standing at the door knocking. <laughs> and Rhoda meets him at the door and, you know, runs inside to tell everybody, forgets to let Peter inside, by the way. And Pete, and as he, she's telling everybody, Peter's here, Peter's here. And everyone's like, God, what? Peter's not here. Get out of here. You're nuts. Oh, Lord, Lord, please save Peter. Please let him out. <laughs> they forgot the guy at the door. And let's be honest, guys. We pray the same way, too, sometimes. The answer to our prayers could be staring us in the face. And we might not have the faith to believe it when it's answered. We ought to have trust in the God who we serve that occasionally, if he does actually love us the way the Bible says he loves us, if, he, if the Bible invites us to pray to God and cast our cares upon him, should we be surprised that occasionally he answers us? We shouldn't be. However, yet, yet other times we aren't trusting God because we began to trust in a process, in the place of God. I've noticed this. Religion has a way of doing this, especially in formal religious settings. <laughs> Funny enough, let's take a crazy example for this. You know, I, I actually went to a hockey game a number of years ago. And uh, the team we went to see was just completely getting crushed. They were, we were way behind come the end of the game. So we're like, all right, you know, by, by a certain time, we're out of here. And, you know, we get close to that time. And well, a friend of ours who was with us, you know, everyone else is leaving the game. The writing's on the wall. So he goes to get a better seat towards the front. He goes and sits down. The minute that he sits down, they score. Our team finally scores one. And the crowd goes wild and it's going great, but we're still down by a huge amount towards the end of the game. So we're like, ah, well, we're out of here. So we go and say, okay, come on, come on, it's time to go. And he's like, no way. 
This is my lucky seat now. I'm staying here till the end of the game. Now, as humorous and regretfully relatable as that story is, sometimes we treat God that way. Sometimes we treat God that way. <laughs> Frankly, for some of you guys have your lucky seat underneath you right now. <laughs> but, but, but wait a minute, but John, this is where the Holy Spirit is in this particular seat of mine. I've been to the other side of the building. The Holy Spirit's not over there. Now look, I get it. I know how it is. We all have our habits. We have our family traditions. I still roughly remember where my family used to sit together. Somewhere right about there. I know how it is. But we, the, my point is we need to guard our hearts from making locations or postures the object of our worship and the object of our trust, the object of our faith, rather than or in place of the living God. And I can't help but to wonder, maybe a part of that was taking place with the disciples in this passage. I could just imagine Peter saying humorously, hey, so Thomas, the last time we did this, were you holding your staff in your left hand or your right when we cast out a demon last time? Are you sure you, heard, you said the words, hear now the word of our Lord before reading the Bible? You know, some of you guys are chuckling at that, but that's how some people treat our liturgy here. As if it's the words that matter. As if it's because I said the words that the Bible will have its effect in your heart today. It's not the words. It's not the formality. And most of us know this. It's, it's, it's received through faith. It's received through hearts ready to receive God's word. God's word is powerful unto itself. I don't need to elevate it. It is what it is. All of this is only as effective as it aids our worship in tuning our hearts and prepares our hearts to sing his praises. Gosh, I had so much more I wanted to share about this, but I want to end on this thought. Great faith is not necessarily knowing every Bible verse that there is to be memorized. Great faith, I mean, that's what the Pharisees did, and look at what Look at how much that gained them. Great faith isn't about praying the loudest or the boldest, nor is it contributing the greatest amount in the offering plate. Great faith is this. Trusting in God when there's no food in the cupboard, no food in the fridge, and no money in the bank, but you still trust God. That is great faith. Saying in your heart when that happens, I might not have enough, but my God is enough and he's going to work it out somehow. That's great faith because your trust is in him, not your circumstances. Great faith is that of Job who praised the Lord in the hardest of times, essentially saying times are tough, but my God is still good. Great faith is when you choose to honor God when it comes to a sacrifice to you. Great faith is what the persecuted church is doing literally this morning all over the world, meeting when people are literally trying to kill them for their beliefs. Great faith is evaluating a choice that, you're, that you are evaluating in your life. And on one hand, there, it looks like there's a lucrative opportunity, but it means you're going to compromise. On the other side, you honor God. And as you're evaluating this choice, you choose... My treasure is in heaven. 
God is my treasure and he is worth far more than anything this world can possibly offer to me. That is great faith. And I can't help but to wonder how often we rob ourselves of joy, of freedom, of fruitfulness, of purity, of sanctification, and countless other blessings because we did not believe that God would keep his promises or believe that God is worth it or bother to ask for these things in prayer. Don't let that be you today. Live, a life, live your life by faith, demonstrating with your life that you actually believe God's word, that you actually are resting in God's promises and believing that he who has promised these things is faithful and is worthy. Thanks be to God.